0: Our first scripture lesson today is from Acts chapter 10. We're looking at verses 1 through 23, and this is sort of my way of reading all the way through the chapter of Acts 10, because we're looking at verses 24 through 48 right after this. But it's one of these things, you got to read the whole thing in order to fully appreciate what's being taught. So, our first half of it, Acts 10, beginning with verse 1, Cornelius, the Roman centurion. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, "Cornelius." And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, "Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God." Now send men to Joppa to bring back a, a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea." That, by the way, just real quick note, pause. That is one of those textual evidences that anybody who suggests that the stuff in the Bible is fairy tales or made-up fiction. When you have two guys named the same name, Simon, in the same text, if you were just making this story up, you would never record it that way because it's way too confusing. The only reason you would name two people Simon is if that's exactly what actually historically happened, right? All right, we continue with verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God himself has made. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the Centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Here ends our first lesson. All right, our teaching today picks up right where the first lesson left off in Acts chapter 10, picking up here, again, the story of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, at verse 24. And here we read, The following day he, which is Peter, He arrived in Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me, that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So I sent for you. I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me, Peter asks. Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter, He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. The Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the Jews, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days." This is God's word. For centuries, the Christian church after Easter has studied the book of Acts. And the logical reason for that is they said, well, when Jesus rose from the grave and 40 days later, he ascended into heaven and 10 days after that, he sends the spirit at Pentecost What did the early Christian church do? What were they doing after they celebrated Jesus' resurrection from the grave? And so what would we do after Easter when we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the grave? And how do we take what the early church did, contextualize it to our particular setting, and glorify God accordingly? Well, the book of Acts really is a snapshot. It's the narrative of the early Christian church. And some of you have maybe heard me say this before. I don't ever remember hearing this growing up necessarily, but I'm fully convinced of it now. The second movement of the book of Acts, the second quarter of the book of Acts is very much predominated by the idea of racial and cultural reconciliation. Gospel-driven, grace-given, racial and cultural reconciliation. God himself has united by grace himself and reconciled himself to sinners. And he says, now you have a supernatural resource in grace to go out and combine yourselves to people that the world tries to categorize you as different from. Now, in our particular context, in Acts chapter 10, we have Cornelius, the Roman centurion. We heard that he got a vision. An angel came and visited him and said, the Lord has heard your prayer, the Lord has recognized the goodness that you've done to the poor, and here's what I want you to do next. I want you to send some of your attendants to go to a place called Joppa, to the home of Simon the Tanner, and get Simon Peter, and he's going to come and teach you some stuff. So Cornelius sends these attendants. Now, the very next day, as they're about to arrive, Peter, he's hungry, he's waiting for a meal to be prepared downstairs, he goes up onto his roof to pray, which is fairly common custom at the time, and he falls into a trance. And in that trance, God has like a sheet fall down, unfurled from heaven, and all these animals start spilling out of the sheet. And it's, it's, it's certain types of four-footed animals, it's certain, it's reptiles, it's certain types of birds, it's, it's animals that the Jewish people would have deemed ceremonially unclean. And the voice from heaven then says to Peter, Peter, kill these animals and eat them. And what does Peter say in all of that? Now, Peter has a history of overtly contradicting God to his face. Uh, It's not a good, particularly positive uh, character trait, so I don't recommend it. But we learn a lot from Peter doing it. And he says, surely not I, Lord. Like, he's deeply offended by what God just said to him. Surely not I, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And God says, Peter, don't you dare call anything that I myself have created unclean. I have made it clean. God has to say this to Peter three times because Peter is pretty uh, thick-headed. And after this, Peter goes downstairs and some visitors from Cornelius' house are showing up and they say, yep, we're here to find you from Cornelius the Roman centurion. Uh, Peter invites them to stay in their house, which is gonna push his level of like, comfort uh, and cultural boundaries at this moment, but it's gonna get more intense from here on out. Starting with verse 24, and I'm gonna call this section a socially offensive visit. So what you have... Peter, six of his Jewish travel companions and the attendants that Cornelius had sent to him have now traveled to Caesarea and they are at the home of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. They enter into the house and Peter immediately is like, "Uh uh-oh, because Cornelius has gathered tons of his friends and family. You know why he did that? He's brought them to hear the gospel proclaimed because the very nature of good news is that you have to proclaim it. If you're not proclaiming good news, that means that you don't think it's all that good. That's the only possible explanation, right? So this is great news. He wants all his friends and family to know about this. He invites them over to this house and Peter walks in. He didn't know what he was walking into but he immediately is uncomfortable and you can tell it in what he says. He says, "Uh, you guys know, right? You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to visit with a Gentile or stay at the home of a Gentile but God has shown me He just told me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now, as a general rule, Gentiles and Jews in society at that time, they did interact, but not in meaningful ways. They never sat down and ate a meal together, rarely. Uh, They would never go into the homes. Jews would never go into the homes of Gentiles. And as a result of that kind of behavior, most Romans looked at them as a little aloof and antisocial. Now, I'll tell you what, they weren't completely wrong. We go to the next chapter, in Acts chapter 11, Peter is going to go back to the church in Jerusalem, which is populated mostly by Jewish converts, and he's going to tell them about what happens here in Caesarea, and you'd think the church in Jerusalem would be so happy about all these conversions, and the church in Jerusalem says, they scold him. Like, what were you thinking going into the home of a Gentile, right? The early church has to get converted out of its cultural elitism, okay? Okay. So Peter shows up, he says, I hope you guys understand what a headache this is going to make for me moving forward, but God told me to do it. And so somewhat semi-unenthusiastically, I'm here. And by the way, I'm not going to include this in our lessons and applications, but it's a good one nonetheless, that Christians don't do what they do because they always feel excited about it. Christians do what they do because God is their master, and when your Lord tells you to do something, you do it. So Peter goes there and he says, yep, I'm somewhat unenthusi- unenthusiastically here, but why am I here? Tell me why I'm here. Cornelius gives him his testimony. He says, a couple days ago, an angel came and visited me, told me to send for you, I don't even really know who you are, but Peter, and uh, to, that invite you to come and teach the gospel to me. And he says that the angel said to me, God has heard your prayer. The Lord has received you. He's remembered your gifts to the poor. And it's at this moment that something starts, to, a light bulb goes on for Peter. And he says specifically here, okay, okay, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now, that phrase, I now realize, like I didn't get this before. I, like only now am I realizing God doesn't play favorites. We're gonna come back to that in a second. What I want you to understand is there's something like intuitive, unfortunately, in human flesh that presumes that God plays favorites, that presumes that God favors certain cultures, certain styles, certain whatever. Why do we presume that? Because we do that and we project that, unfortunately, onto God. But for right now, we're gonna get to that in the applications. What I want you to see is, what does Jesus do? He sees an open door to the gospel at this moment. And so what does he teach? He says, all right, Jesus of Nazareth was anointed by God He was born and raised and started his ministry in Galilee, and he did miracles, and he proclaimed the kingdom. And uh, despite all of his powerful ministry, uh, the Jewish leaders and the Gentile leaders both hated him because he was calling them to repentance, and they crucified him. And thousands of people witnessed this, and hundreds nonetheless saw him rise from the grave to such an extent that they ate and they drank with him. And then he commissioned us, okay, go and share this good news with everybody that you run to in life for the forgiveness of their sins, for eternal life, for hope for the future. Go and tell everyone else. And as Peter is talking like this, specifically as he's mentioning Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, something really interesting happens. It's in that moment that the Spirit of God comes down. And the Spirit comes down and affirms uh, the Gentiles who are now speaking in tongues. And the Jews' minds are absolutely blown by this. And very clearly, what God is communicating to Peter is that God accepts the Gentiles just like he accepts the Jews. He doesn't discriminate. He plays no favorites. And God is a God of all the nations. Evidenced by everyone speaking in tongues, the Spirit has clearly received the Gentiles. What Peter has learned here is that God's Spirit works unexpectedly. In places, in people, in things, in moments, in events that your narrow mind never could possibly conceive. And if I'm gonna boil like the whole lesson down into one simple thought, I would say probably this: God is telling Peter, the Gentiles should not have to convert into Judaism in order to become my child. The Gentiles should not have to convert into Judaism in order to become my child. And the way I'd put that in modern terms, anybody that you're trying to meet with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They should not have to convert into your personal preferences, your cultural style, your forms and in order to be a follower of Jesus. If you want somebody to meet Jesus, do not make them convert into your preferences and your culture and your forms. Just let them follow Jesus in their own native forms. Now Uh, I want to unpack that basic thought in three quick ways here. First one, is I've already alluded to it, cultural self-righteousness. Peter says something really interesting near the end of the text today. And it's in verse 47. He says, Surely no one can stand in the way of their, the Gentiles, being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Now, What Bible commentators will tell you is this statement is almost identical to a statement that's made in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. What's going on there is it's the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, the Ethiopian financial minister. And in that moment, when the Ethiopian reads the Isaiah scroll, has it explained to him by Philip and comes to faith and has identified Jesus as the Messiah, he sees water and he says, why shouldn't I be baptized? What should stop me from being baptized, anything? That's almost the exact same thing as what's said here. What should stop me from being baptized? Who should prevent them? Who should stand in the way of them being baptized? And what commentators will say is, why are these questions, which are virtually identical, explained negatively? You know, who could stand in the way of them being baptized? Why should I not be baptized? Why is that stated? You know why it's stated negatively? Because there's something in our human flesh that presumes that something does stand in the way of certain people being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Our native flesh, our fallen flesh assumes God has preferences and that he likes certain external forms and something might stand in the way of certain people coming to be followers of Jesus Christ. So let me state this as bluntly and clearly as I can. The gospel of Jesus, it's not a language. It's not an ethnic cuisine. It is not a haircut. It is not a style of dress. It is not a worship style. The gospel of Christianity is good news of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's it. But our fallen flesh always wants to add something to that. It always wants to add something and say, like, if people do this, if they look this way, if they dress this way, if they talk this way, then they are really special forms of children of God. You know what that's called? In Theological terms It's called self-righteousness. Now, why do people, why are people ever guilty of self-righteousness? Uh, I'm going to explain it as best I can here. It looks like this. If salvation is being with God and we're down here and God is up there and salvation is going to be with him, the reason we make man-made rules is because if we follow them but other people don't, I follow these rules, other people are beneath me then, and I'm a little closer to God on the basis of something other than the grace of Jesus Christ. It is a very subtle and sinister rejection of Christ alone as my savior. Now, religious people, generally speaking, religious people tend to define sin only in terms of self-indulgence, taking away from God's commands, breaking God's commands. You don't get to tell me how to live my life. I'm going to do it whatever I want. It's a rejection of Jesus Christ as your Lord and master. But what a lot of religious people don't understand is the twin sin that Satan gets us on, which is the sin of self-righteousness. This is not a rejection of Jesus as Lord, it's a rejection of Jesus Christ and his grace alone as our salvation, Jesus as our savior. The Holy Spirit not only has to convert us out of the first one, but for a lot of us, the Holy Spirit is trying to convert us out of that second one right now. And um, this is precisely the reason, by the way, that the internal miracle of Pentecost is the conversion of thousands of hearts. The external miracle of Pentecost, however, is speaking in tongues. Now, I think a lot of Christians, if I ask them, what's the external miracle of Pentecost, I think a number of them can tell me speaking in tongues. And if I say, why is that the external miracle of Pentecost, they'll look at me funny. Like, I, you know, I don't know. In other words, why is the external miracle of Pentecost not just God levitates 3,000 people? Wouldn't that be a sign of approval too? You know, uh, it's because God's miracles, Jesus' miracles are, are never just random acts of strength. They are restoration of the kingdom. So what is God restoring through the speaking of tongues? He's restoring the unity of different people groups that the world tries to separate. And he says, the gospel doesn't work in any one language. The gospel doesn't work in any one worship style. The gospel, doesn't, the gospel permeates all those things. The grace of Jesus Christ is equally extended to every tribe, every nation, every language, as the church in Revelation says. This is the reason why uh, a Yale divinity professor by the name of Laman Sana uh, wrote a book a couple decades ago uh, called Translating the Message. And he was talking about the unique influence that Christianity had on the continent of Africa in the 20th century. Uh, now, I'm gonna read you a section of his. He's a Yale professor, so I had to read it about 10 times to understand exactly what he's saying. But I'm, I'm gonna do my best to unpack it uh, right here. Here's what he says. In time, Christianity, expanded from Europe into Asia and Africa, among other places, and was able to break out of its Western cultural confinement by repeating the process by which the church's missionary center shifted from Jerusalem to a multi-ethnic congregation in Syrian Antioch and beyond. In some important respects, however, the modern shift was unprecedented for it was the extraordinary multiplicity of mother tongue idioms that became the subject of Christian mission rather than the cosmopolitan values of an ascendant West. Okay, so here's what this means in numerical terms. In 1900, we know that there were about 9 million uh, Christians in Africa. By 2000, so one century later, there were 380 million Christians in Africa. In the time of one century, Africa as a continent shifted from about 8% Christian to about 50% Christian. And the projections are that by the year 2050, uh, it'll probably, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, be over two-thirds Christian. By 2050, Africa's probably going to be sending missionaries to the United States, Christian missionaries, okay? Now, what Laman Sana says is the reason for that is, it's not that other people didn't try to convert uh, Africa at various points. Islam absolutely had an effort to convert Africa. It didn't work, why? Because at least lamansana Sana says sociologically, Uh, Islam was trying to convert Africa into becoming a Middle Eastern culture. That didn't work. Uh, In fact, I'm not just trying to pick on Islam here. If I showed you a map and I said, point to me the geographic location, the geographical hub of Hinduism or Islam or Judaism or Taoism or Confucianism or Mormonism, you would be able to point to a specific spot on the map. And if I said, now go ahead and point to me the geographic hub of Christianity, the moment you start pointing, you're wrong. Okay? This is exactly what Laman Sana is saying. He's saying Christianity converted Africa not by converting African culture, but by infusing African culture with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, no matter what background you have, if you want to reach people in our multiculture with the gospel of Jesus Christ you must repent of any sort of cultural self-righteousness or cultural biases that you have. Uh, the gospel is entirely itself non-negotiable, the content, but it's shockingly flexible in cultural forms. Uh, I read a book recently by the former Missouri Synod president by the name of Gerald Kieschnick, and he was in one section, it was really interesting, he was sort of lamenting Some of the past sins of a a church body and he recounted a number of different things that just two generations prior uh, almost every church had said universally was immoral that they've now changed their mind on so for instance some examples that he gave were at one point purchasing life insurance was condemned as a lack of faith in god's providence at one point uh, some christians were excommunicated for dancing publicly Uh, At one point, women were not allowed to sit together with men in churches. He said, today in our churches, no one thinks that way. Uh, No one thinks that way. What changed? Did the Bible change? No, the Bible didn't change. A bunch of God's people came to the humbling realization of their own religiously, I'm going to even say probably well-intentioned, but nonetheless unfortunate self-righteousness, unfortunate preferences, unfortunate biases that they were elevating their man made rules that they were elevating to the level of God, and that required repentance. Practically, what this means is if you are a Christian, you must, you must walk towards people who, in some way, shape, or form, are different than you with a new perspective of grace. Okay? By the way, I've said the word culture a thousand times, but I'm not even talking. It could be culture, it could be ethnicity, it could be politics, it could be, let me put it like this. If you're just personality-wise, if you take a personality test, if you are temperamentally conservative, at some point in time, you are going to have to humble yourself enough to recognize that all of your morality is sometimes a little immoral. And if you are temperamentally progressive, at some point in time, you're going to have to humble yourself enough to recognize that all of your tolerance is sometimes a little intolerant. Every single one of us, no matter who we are or what our temperament is, needs to move with renewed, infused grace into the presence of people culturally different than us and be amazed by God's grace. Okay? So that first part is cultural self-righteousness. The second point is very closely related, the continued conversion of believers. This text, it's about conversions. The interesting question is, who's conversion? Because there's thousands of conversions that take place in the first century AD, but they're not all recorded for us. That means that the one that the Spirit inspires to be recorded have very specific messages attached to them. Why is this one recorded for us? And you say, well, whose conversion is going on? Well, it's Cornelius. Peter goes and he proclaims the gospel to Cornelius, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And that's true. Cornelius is baptized into the Christian faith. He is converted here. However... This text, if you can't tell, is written in such a way that it is trying to teach you there's something, there's an ongoing conversion that's going on inside of Peter, okay? Now, some people might quibble with my word conversion there, but I'm going to tell you the New Testament words for conversion and repentance, repentance, metano, and, uh, conversion, strefo, are virtually synonyms in that language. They both mean to change your mind and it creates a subsequent change in your lifestyle. They both mean to turn away from something that should not be and turn towards the new life in Jesus Christ. Now, you couple that idea together with the idea of the guy that I think is the most, I just call him the most spiritually self-aware sinner in the Bible. And it's the guy in Mark chapter 9 who comes to Jesus with a demon-possessed son for an exorcism. But what he says is, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You know what that means? It means that the Spirit of God, you might be a justified believer, child of God, the Spirit of God lives inside of you, and yet there are still these, like, unconverted chambers that exist in your heart, each of us. Look at what Peter says here in verses 34 and 35. I now realize that God doesn't show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. What do you mean you now realize that God doesn't play favorites? I guarantee Peter has read Isaiah a thousand times. How many times do you need to hear it say that the Messiah is going to be a light to all nations, a savior for all mankind? Peter understood that intellectually. He, could, he understood that on paper. He had never experienced it until this moment. Uh, I could put it a little bit differently. It's, it's, for instance, it's one thing to say you're not racist. It's one thing to say people shouldn't be racist. And by the way, almost everyone says that. Almost everyone except a very, very narrow group on the fringes of society might, might not say that. But almost everybody uh, knows you shouldn't be racist. It's, there's a difference between saying you shouldn't be racist and not living a racist lifestyle. Peter here knows the right stuff on paper. He just hasn't lived it out. To this moment. He's experiencing grace for a new time, and the Spirit is helping him overcome that. By the way, even though the Spirit is leading him to repentance over his ethnic superiority complex right here, it doesn't mean that he's done with it here. You continue to read through your New Testament, go ahead and read through Galatians 2 at some point. And what the Apostle Paul does is he recounts this embarrassing incident that took place in the multi-ethnic congregation of Syrian Antioch, where the Apostle Paul had to publicly rebuke the Apostle Peter for his ethnic superiority complex. Peter struggled with racism, but he's repenting of it. This is the first moment where the Spirit is leading him to repent of it. Now, I gotta say, by and large, one of the reasons why I'm here, and when I say here, I mean, I think I mean here, like in the city of Milwaukee, and maybe even specifically more here at St. Marcus, I love the fact that uh, the Spirit of God has created a spirit in this congregation that by and large, I think, understands the point of this text, Maybe not all of us and maybe not to the same degree, but about as much as any other congregation that I've ever been around, I think St. Marcus understands the spirit of this particular text. But I also understand that there are a lot of people who are influenced by the ministry that takes place in these walls on a day-to-day basis who this particular point, uh, we might need to help them see in some respects. They need to see, we need to see, you need to be converted by someone different culturally different from you. And what I mean by that, Christianity is so humble. It's so uh, fascinating in that it's the only belief system I can think that works like this, where you simultaneously, the truth of God's word is never compromised or negotiated. And yet, the truth of God's word makes you so humble, so modest, so uh, anti-triumphalistic that even the evangelists know they have some conversion to be done from the converts. Even Peter the evangelist knows I got to learn something from the people that God is working, uh, you're working through me to help convert. I, I know of no other system like that. That leads me to the final point, the foreign savior. Here's what we've said. One, all humans have some level of innate cultural self-righteousness. We all do. Some of us acknowledge it. Two, even justified believers need ongoing conversion of heart, which only comes through repentance, spirit given repentance. And three, the question is, when does this happen? When does the spirit lead us to repent of our our biases and our cultural self-righteousness? And the answer is every time he shows us that we have a foreign savior. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of people have looked at this text and falsely interpreted it as meaning like universalism. Like you have two different peoples who, all people who believe in God, they're calling God by different names in different places, but they're all basically worshiping the same God. That's universalism. That can't be taught here because Cornelius gets baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, And for that matter, the spirit actually comes down powerfully when Peter is teaching about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So it's clearly not teaching universalism. And here's what I want to say then. Uh, Becoming culturally humble, becoming culturally sensitive is such a good, beautiful, God-pleasing thing and it will never save you. Becoming more culturally sensitive is a wonderful thing and it never saves you. The only thing that can save you is a culturally sensitive savior. The only thing that can save you is the fact that someone who wasn't just from a foreign nation but from outside of this planet who didn't just cross cultural borders, but went from heaven to earth and death to life, crossed over as a missionary. Jesus was a missionary who gave up absolutely everything at an extraordinary cost to himself to die in our place and receive our punishment for sins because he loved us that much. He could have judged us. By every definition, he should have judged us, but instead he loved us enough to face judgment in our place for our elitism. He was born a Jew. He's betrayed by the Jews. He's handed over to the Gentiles. He gets the worst possible execution that the Gentiles could ever really conceive of. And yet, despite all that, he loved you enough to walk into your house. As costly as it was for him, as painful as it was for him, he walked into your house so that you could go and live forever in his. And when you believe that, the Spirit of God not only unites you to God, but it humbles you. It affects your value system. It affects the way you speak to and about other people because there's this unlikely foreign friend in Jesus who becomes, you know, the brother from a virgin mother. He is the God who rose from the grave and therefore any wall between us and God has been deconstructed. Any curtain that tries to separate humans from the presence of God's blessing has been torn in two from top to bottom we testify to that resurrected reality every time we cross cultural lines with grace still today. Let's close the prayer. Lord Jesus, our sinful nature wants to judge. Our flesh wants us to move away from anyone who's different from us in any way. But your blood that redeems us and your spirit who moves us ushers us into unknown and beautiful places with grace. May it glorify your holy name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit saintmarcus.org.